This is Real Good by U.S. Bank, a podcast about helpers. Those problems of disparities and gaps in health, education, and income predate COVID. But those problems during COVID became equal opportunity problems. I'm Faith Saley. The impact of the novel coronavirus is hard to overstate. It upended life for everyone. It created a new normal full of new problems, but it also shined a light on issues that have long existed in communities across the country. This show is dedicated to the stories of people making a difference. Folks who are fighting for those in need against problems old and new, isolated and intersectional. Each week, we'll talk with nonprofit leaders organizing vital aid, U.S. Bank team members supporting their efforts, and those people whose lives they're changing. This week, our guest is Stan Little, the CXO of the United Way. Stan and I talked about how the United Way, which is something we've all heard of, can be so effective at being so huge and so local. And he introduced me to something the United Way has created called 211, which you may never have heard of. But calling that number and getting its support literally saves people's lives. And not knowing what 211 is, is in itself a kind of privilege. Stan Little, your actual title is CXO? That's it such is. A, that's a boss acronym. <laughs> what it, does, it what is. does that mean? <laughs> well, look, it, it stands for Chief Experience Officer. And yes, I know experience starts with a E, but we do have a CEO already. And this the Chief Experience Officer is kind of a new cool title that yeah. many tech companies use especially out uh, on the West Coast, uh, and it, it United Way Worldwide, it encompasses almost everything that outside the company you would experience. It, it encompasses media, uh, our marketing and brand, communications, PR, our products, um, our donors and investors. So anybody who interfaces uh, with uh, any part of our brand, um, that's experience. And so... I'm I'm kind of responsible for all of it. I, I kind of like that it's also like chief hugs and kisses officer. A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. You will have a good experience at minimum, but we're striving for you to have an exceptional experience. So hugs and kisses, if, it, if it's required, we'll do that. I just want you to tell me that you sign all of your work emails XO. Stan. I do. Okay, XO. good. Thank you. XO, XO, XO. <laughs> so you're... Your background is going from high-earning private sector to nonprofit. Is that right? It it is, and um, I thank you for for saying high-earning. I I long for those days, I'll, <laughs> you know, for the rest of my life. Um, but uh, but I, I will say that even in the private sector, and you know, part of my most recent. Uh, past, uh, I was in the private sector, but supporting community impact. What is it like to move into nonprofit 
from a, from such a from such a corporate background, even if you were sort of into community funding. Yeah, it, you know, it's interesting that if you are not in banking, you would just think, uh, you know, banks are that's where all the money is and that's where you go get a loan. And, you know, that's the end of your dealing. But um, banks and banking financial services in this country uh, really have a big uh, corporate social responsibility component to them, and especially our money center banks and our retail banks. So although, um, yes, commercial and yes, um, profit motive and yes, banks get most of their relationships through community relationships. They get most of their, um, their brand lift by being good stewards of community assets. So imagine banks, for example, are investing in uh, bonds, for example, bringing um, municipal projects to, to the bear. And, and they gotta, they got to actually perform in the community doing good work in order to uh, be considered for all of those local city and county types of uh, uh, banking deals. So just imagine that, you know, here you are in a bank and banks are doing great commercial work, but they're also at the same time doing phenomenal work in the communities. And and so a a company like U.S. Bank, companies like um, any of the financial services have a big CSR component. CSR stands for? Corporate social. Corporate social responsibility. And that's usually where their community service, community impact comes under. I'm really glad you just explained that. Because I think you're right. If, if people don't have a history of doing what you do, you hear banking and you just think dollar signs. Yeah. And you think just pure profit. You, you think that's where the money is. And, and face it, um, 2007, 2008, 2009, uh, banks weren't the most popular entities on the planet and somewhat blamed for the Great Recession of 2008, 2009 for reasons that were probably more isolated to certain sort of practices and bad actors. But the vast majority of banks are salt of the earth and they not only do um, commercial deals and uh, infrastructure deals and the like, but they, they fund Main Street as well. And in order to fund Main Street and small businesses and expansions and schools and things of that nature, they have to have those relationships in the community. Stan, will you please tell us the date, including the year, that you started <laughs> this job at the United Way? Uh, boy, it will uh, shock you. So I started my uh, storied career at the United Way worldwide in the year 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and actually, officially, I started on February the Eighth, just by you know, kind of going in, doing all the employee onboarding, shaking um, hands, as it were, way back. Shaking in hands ba- back in those times, and and uh, physically showing up and getting uh, getting office space, and you know, crowded in meetings and the like. And about uh, thirty days later, uh, I'm in my home office, just like everybody else. And yeah. the pandemic is upon us, and life has changed probably forever. How drastic was it for you to start this big, exciting job that has an X in the title? And and then two weeks, you know, a few weeks later, you have national shutdowns. And your job is about connecting with people. And here you are in your home office. 
Yeah, that's right. So in no time flat, uh, the personal live uh, connections, you know, came to a screeching halt. All of us tried to figure out, well, how do we interface and connect and deal with people in this sort of new world order? And I will tell you, we immediately ran through every technology there is. So, you know, we, we everybody got Zoom, we got Skype, we got WebEx, we, we got them all, we got Teams, we got anything that would help us to figure out how to be seamlessly connected with uh, our investors, our donors, our partners, and the likes. And so we probably bumped around like everybody else did uh, for the first weekish and a half or so, but then we got really good at it. And for me, um, I've, in my career, I've worked out of this home office for six or seven years. So it was like riding a bike to get back into the swing of, um, you know, up early and probably into the evening. But I will tell you that I don't know what normal looks like at the United Way Worldwide. We're still seeking that. um, And and I'm not sure if what I come to, to know as normal will be any way, any way near what people who've worked there would have called normal. The, the new normal will probably still be different. That's right. And what, I mean, what kind of experience did you tap into? How was this a change for, you know, not the logistics of using a home office and getting a good, you know, internet signal, but, but like your soul? What was it like to start a job where you need to connect with people and have to do it virtually? It, 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 it still is. I'm going to say it was, but it still is. Um, you got to be intentional. I had to be so intentional about trying to learn the uh, needs, approaches, processes, um, and people who are, you know, who have the same business card as I do, but I don't get to see them unless I'm on a call like this and I can, you know, see them face to face. And at the same time, you're trying to do that with donors. So imagine trying to get somebody to do, you know, the most difficult things people do. I always say the two most difficult things is to get somebody to make a decision and separately to get somebody to part with their money. And my job is to get somebody to make a decision to part with their money <laughs> and 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 to do that and not be in person. Um, and so it, uh, it highlights the fact that... Um, for for our organization and for me personally, it is a trial, a bit of a trial by fire. None of the processes and approaches that people were comfortable with exist really anymore. So we are incredibly agile. Let's talk about the United Way. I think everybody's heard of it. We all know it does good stuff, but what does it do and how does it do? Yeah, the, I like the way you said that. The United Way does good stuff. I'm going to put that in my new marketing. Uh, you can take that. Can I take that? I'll give you credit the, for the first time. Um, the short answer about the United Way is it's you go back to its mission. And so the United Way's mission really is to improve lives um, in every community, every person, everywhere, and to try to do that by mobilizing all of the good, caring philanthropy and uh, power that individuals have. And, and so, in essence, what we do is we know where all the need is. And we know the nature of the need because we're globally local. We, we are local everywhere. We have 1,100 different uh, 
the United Way offices throughout the U.S. and Canada, and that covers a multiple of communities in those big offices. Um, and every one of them's slightly different because the need is slightly different. So, so we know, and probably uniquely so, we know the need in each of these communities, whether it's health, education, income, whether it's housing, and they are all different. So we know what's on the ground, we know what the need is, et cetera. And then we, at the other end, know all the uh, support that um, is available. We know the resources from what I mentioned earlier. We know great philanthropy, the corporate donors, institutional donors, who want to help in those various need situations. So part of what we do is we, um, we match. We match all the need with all the resources and we can do that like nobody else globally, but certainly in this case, pandemic issue here in the U.S., we can do that nationwide everywhere quickly and in a very efficient, effective manner. And then we follow all of the data about what the impact has done so that we can plan community resiliency for the next time. And we can do that over and over and over again, and have been doing that for roughly 130 some odd years. The, the United Way is like a need yenta. It you is. Know, you know just it is. whom to match. That's nice. <laughs> it is. I wonder if the breadth of what United Way does and the breadth of, of where it is, is almost a challenge. Because as you described to me how United Way is, is all over and all over locally, um, it still feels very general. And I think when you really capture people's hearts and their generosity of spirit or wallet, um, people really respond to personal stories, right? Really specific stories. Can you, can you share a story that moves you? So I, you know, one of the things I will share is there's two, and um, th this one is kind of an interesting one. DoorDash is a small company, startup company. Um, a lot of folks who really want to help don't know how to help. And then they decide to look at their own business model of delivering food and saying, how do I, how do I mobilize my normal business model of delivering food and be the delivery conduit for what's happening right now in this oppressed COVID-19 environment where uh, you may have food pantries who well, listen, people are under curfew or people are restricted from, you know, public access and, and social distancing and the like. And so um, the Rockefeller Center ends up coming to us saying, I got a great idea. I, I want to, says the Rockefeller Center, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, pardon me, says, I got a great idea. I want to match those. And how do you guys have anybody in your portfolio who's done good work with you, et cetera? And long story short, we connect those dots. The Rockefeller Foundation provides uh, all the resources for DoorDash to pick up food at the various, not only food pantries, et cetera, but restaurants who've decided that they too want to be part of that solution. And now we have the opportunity for access to capital, to, to buy and support food, to transport that to food centers and to uh, individuals that are in um, nursing homes and they may be in uh, other kind of facilities that are difficult for them to have access to. 
And we rinse and repeat that. And people now have the opportunity to get through that emergency um, in, a, in a dignified, in a really dignified way. So th- those are the things, you know, some of the personal sort of heart tugging stories to me, I-, I will say they are that, but they are, um, they're not scalable or they're not scaled. They are, they are um, examples of going in and helping an individual. Here is an individual dis- in a foundation deciding to, to scale a big capability to do a mass food matchup of delivery. And those are the things that drive me. How do you, how do you move the needle in a big way, in a sustainable way, in a durable way with capacity? Fundamentals. That's right. And, and we lack that a lot in, um, interestingly, we lack that a lot in our country. It, what, what, what often happens is we don't, um, we call them the uh, invisible problems. And in fact, the United mm-hmm. Way has a, a, a crowdsourcing of ideas type of platform right now called the invisible problems, where because of this enormous issue that we're dealing with right now, we're uncovering um, issues that nobody would have thought about. And as they are being uncovered, we're curating those so that we can start doing some social innovation and design for resiliency for the future. Um, these hidden problems, these invisible problems, I will say are invisible to the privilege to folks like you and I, but they're not, you know, to people who are infected every day. That's right. This, so, so COVID is making visible to communities who have been uh, privileged or um, been lucky enough to get by even, right? It's making That's right. It's making these systemic problems not just visible but undeniable. And and I see um you know when I when I go to the United Way website and I read about the mission, um I, I see this kind of trifecta of uh a, a prioritizing health, education, and financial stability. And it strikes me that that is the trifecta of despair and challenge right now in the, ta- in the pandemic. It is. And, and what's interesting and unfortunate is that um, those problems predate COVID. Those problems of disparities and gaps in health, education, and income uh, predate COVID. Um, but those problems uh, b- during COVID became um, equal opportunity problems. They, 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 they know no gender. They know no race. Even though people of color are disproportionately affected by the economic impact, they are because they have low resiliency financially. They have had inequities to access to health and educational systems and the like. So the first, uh, you know, the last to get hired, the first to, you know, be let go, lower level jobs that are, um, you know, manual and in person, they can't work from home. Those, when you start to do a profile on the kinds of uh, jobs and uh, careers that will get shaken out and did get shaken out, Early, they're the ones that um, that you you got to show up, and 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 many of those people would not have classified themselves as uh, low to moderate income even, 
but they didn't realize that their livelihood is at risk because, um, well, it's a social, it's a livelihood that relies on the gathering. It's a livelihood that, you know, relies on, uh, you know, interpersonal and the like. And so COVID has exposed that in, in a, in a really big way. So we do say health education and income are our top three objectives, but we do everything else as well. Those are the ones that we really uh, call our pillars. And we try to do all three of those with two platforms underneath. One is an advocacy platform. So we're going to try to change policy with health education and income as well. Not only intervene at the individual level, but try to get the systemic issues on the Hill addressed or uh, at the local levels address where there are disparities that are policy related. And then secondly, how do we help health education and income be devoid of inequity? How, how do we allow people to have equitable access to health? And so we'll hear all of these often spoken about as the gaps, the health gap, the education gap, the income gap, the wealth gap, there, you know, there's a gap um, for almost everything like that. And COVID has not only shined a light on it, but it has shined an incredibly bright light um, on a lot of the systemic issues that um, that that cause hardship in communities yeah, like that. Yeah, it's it's a it's a clear light. <laughs> it's blinding. Uh, what what is the United Way doing? How do you all pivot? How do you all prioritize? Yeah. So interesting. Um, you know, I started out by saying I don't know what normal looks like. So to me, I'm not sure what we're pivoting from. I showed up and we we're in the fight, right? So here, here's the one thing I will say. Um, I don't think it's a pivot. You, you know, so I've been there a hundred days, and it feels like dog years a bit. And and it's not a pivot, but it's more a triage. It would be like um, you know there was a mass catastrophe that happened and people rushed into a hospital and you don't pivot away from um, sort of surgery and caring for the wounded and that sort of thing. What you do is I got to still care for you. I still have to care for economic needs. I still have to care for health needs and, and the like. But the volume is so overwhelming that now I have to now triage which are the ones I got to deal with immediately Um Else, I don't have the opportunity to, uh, they won't have the opportunity to recover economically or otherwise. Um, and so you've hit on the, the big issue. It, our work every day is the same work. The volume is just four times as much as it used to be. How do you handle that? What's changed? What are y'all doing? And so two things. One is we appeal to the caring power of the community. And at the same time, th that caring power looks like this. In the last eight, nine weeks, we uh, have been able to raise $0.7 billion in- Billion, with a B. With, with a B. $0.7 billion in, in less than two months, appealing to the caring philanthropy of people individually, you know, with big bank accounts and small corporations, institutions, um, municipalities to- aim at this 4X influx of uh, hardship. 
And it's how do you do that? That's ain't, you know, Zoom calls, but how do you do that? Uh, we do that because we have been able to uh, tell the story with data. And, and so now a, an important part of the United Way is data-driven, insight and information-driven stories. I can tell you a story, but I can also show you the data that-, that What's a, what's a data story? Tell me a data story. So, so a data story might be like um, our, our network of uh, 211 affiliates in this country. Uh, there's roughly 180 211 affiliates in this country. All right, what's a 211 affiliate? And 211 works like 911. Um, if, if you will. Um, 911 is for life-threatening emergencies. You call that number anywhere on a cell phone or you uh, hit an app and you're going to get to a contact center and they're going to try to triage what your need is, you know, for a life-threatening emergency. 211 is equivalent to that, um, but it's for um, social support needs. It's for, I need food. I need, my lights are going to be turned off. Uh, I just lost my job. I don't know where the nearest health center is. I want to get tested. It is everything that you and I would probably be thinking about. I just call my physician. I just do this. That if you're in the um, affected class, basically 211 is your only direct line to be connected with services. And this in is your, specifically a United Way initiative, 211? The, the 211 network uh, is largely United Way and independent affiliates throughout North America. It's only in North America, US and Canada. And, and I will tell you, as good as it is, it's not enough. It, 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 is, it is phenomenal in what it does. We just... Just like a 911 call, we have you call in. There's a recording to make sure that for customer services purposes and the like, we there's a recording. Um, there is also a caseworker who is uh, detailing what your issues are. They are mapping that over to the, the provider network. If you called in for health, you called in for food, you called in for you know fill in the blank. Now, why is that important here is that as the COVID-19 impact was happening, we could see the volume of calls mounting and 90% of all those calls were about health issues at the beginning. They were about, I heard about this virus thing. I heard about this. Can I get tested? What's it? What's the difference between uh, a test and an antibody uh, script? And on and on and on. All of those were classified as health needs. And then we start to see we start to see early signs that the vo- the percentage of health needs start to go down, and then suddenly the percentage of economic needs started to rise in our call centers. And so, as we're looking at the wave going across the con- uh, country, and as we're looking at the the curve sort of spiking, um, sort of from the who's affected health wise, we were already seeing our curve start to spike on economic issues ahead of unemployment because uh, w- people will call 211 before they lose their job they'll call 211 when their bills are due and they're juggling them and then they'll say hey look I'm having a problem my utility is going to get cut off and we can support matching them with um, stable sustainable housing options before trying to head those things off so that network is um, I'm going to say it's good but it's not good enough it's good because of what it does. It's not designed 
to handle 4X capacity. We do 12 million uh, contacts uh, a year. That's like 33,000 a day. And in the last two months, we did over, you know, 270. So th- that's where I think um, it's, it's a, it's a catch-22 a little bit. We have capabilities. They are, um, they are good at what they are doing. They don't have the capacity that uh, this pandemic has demonstrated to us that we need to be uh, ready for the next uh, the, the next issue of this sort. What? How do you plan? What do you do in that case? So you two need things. More money. You need more money, but yeah. but but you. What do you need more money for? We're in. Uh, we started in the response phase. So there's four phases to these things, right? So we started in response phase, which is just go out and help, relieve human suffering right away. I need capacity. Capacity may mean I need now to be around the clock with five with you know five uh, contact center people versus the two I normally have. That's that's capacity to address the immediate onslaught. What happens after that is you start to get into um, recovery. So so now that uh, the curve is, you know, sort of flattening, but people have been unemployed, we now need to help them um, sustain this down period and the like. So what we are doing now is we're calling on, um, we're calling on individuals, high net worth, institutions, corporations, because the dollars that are required are pretty big to reimagine with us. So we've moved from this concept of recovery, you know, response, recovery, rebuild, which is the normal three-part, to response, recovery, reimagine. Mm-hmm. Let's, now, let's now reimagine what good systems should look like. Let's reimagine how our 211 network should look like, not like what it was. I don't want to go back necessarily to what it was. And and if we do that right before we start to build again, we're now building in resiliency in the community and not reactionary tendencies in the community. Gosh, just that word reimagine sounds so hopeful. I didn't, I didn't realize the how only thirsty hope. I was to hear that word. <laughs> it's the only oh. element of hope in this, only element of hope in this whole thing. And, and one thing I will say to you is um, I've done disaster recovery a lot. In, in prior work. But I've not done a disaster that hit all 50 states at the same time. Yeah. And I've not done a disaster that lasts for months in all 50 states at the same time. And nothing that we could have ever been prepared for, probably on the care response side, like what we do, you know, would would have prepared us for that. But But now what we have is we have that in all 50 states at the same time. And we're just entering hurricane season um, as of today, I think. Oh. And, and, and so I, I just continue to appeal to uh, people that nobody's immune to the hardships that can happen in a person's life. Um, and even with privilege, we all have our turn. And um, it is just such a demonstrated element of humanity to uh, to join the fight, to to do what you can, um, and if that's volunteer advocacy or, or or dollars, don't 
stand by and um, and just be an innocent bystander to it. Stan, I have to tell you, for what it's worth, um, I feel I feel uh, I feel moved that I have never heard of two one one because what that means is I've never needed it. Correct. Um, and I feel I feel really lucky, and I feel grateful that two one one is something that exists. Do do most people in communities who need to know that number know that number? It's interesting. The the um, short answer is yes. And the not so good answer about that is yes, because they often probably have to use it a lot. Wow. It, the, it, 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 you and I, 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 I do so appreciate that statement that you just made. It, it is that if if you're in if you're at risk if you're insecure if you're food insecure housing insecure if you're in in that category over the last probably 5 years of my life sort of now devoted more towards community impact you really do have to be pretty resourceful as a, as a person who doesn't have access to disposable income and some of the privileges that we have um, you really have to be really sharp to be poor in this country. Oh, my gosh. I never heard anybody put it that way. And, of course, it makes sense. The, the things that are, that are available um, in some ways are available. Um, travel vouchers, um, housing supplements, food supplements, those kinds of benefits are available. But if you lived in a city like, you know, let's say you live in a city like Atlanta, and you're somewhat insecure with uh, with housing, healthcare, you know, food, et cetera. Uh, and you're completely eligible for those kinds of benefits. And you're um, you're an hourly wage earner, probably at a not um, livable wage. You you're likely taking public transportation. And um, just imagine that in order for you to get to the supplemental nutrition the snap office which is on one side of town um and then to get your uh travel voucher which is on the other side of town and you got to do all that kind of stuff um and you got to take time off to do that and you gotta you know have a babysitter to do that and you so and even now though in a pandemic your health is at risk just and to go it, from one place it, your to health another. is at yeah. risk yeah. Th that's right yeah. so under normal circumstances and this is why i say you know i'm not all that interested in going back to normal because on normal circumstances mm -hmm. you and i would go out to dinner a couple of times a week you know um and, and we wouldn't think of that as much as entertainment as convenience sometimes and maybe sometimes it's entertainment but oh gee i, I didn't put anything on so let's just go out and grab something um while we're doing that normal for that at-risk, low-to-moderate income family and set of families, normal is um, is a nightmare. What does a partnership with, with a place like U.S. Bank mean to United Way and to other nonprofits? Everything, um, in, in a word. Um, so, you know, we the work that we do and uh, the work that... Um, our good partners like U.S. Bank does is we mobilize um, not only um, the bank's philanthropy, 
but the philanthropy of the individuals who work there. And they they have ways of getting in the fight. They can get in the fight through um, their normal U, U.S. bank uh, uh, campaign for the United Way. They can get in the fight through volunteerism that we can help coordinate. They can get in the fight by lending their voice. So U.S. Bank just happens to be, I think it's the largest um, employee campaign that we have. And it defies gravity. <laughs> it, it is, U.S. Bank is so intentional about uh, engaging their employees in the real work. Even our having this discussion uh, today is uh, a testament to the lengths through which they go to prepare and be um, be very uh, intentional about bringing the issues to light and not pressuring somebody to um, to act. But nobody at U.S. Bank could ever say, I didn't know. And, mm-hmm. and they make sure that they eliminate that, um, that chasm of, oh, that was an invisible problem, or I didn't know about that, or I didn't know I had the opportunity. So uh, we celebrate organizations like U.S. Bank because what they do is they present the opportunity for everybody to be a citizen philanthropist in a way that is um, fulfilling for them. Um, and, and I think everybody gets the feeling that they can be a part of the fight. Stan, uh, thank you. Thank you for fighting the good fight. And, and I have to say this, this conversation has been very, um, it's been very illuminating and, and meaningful to me. Thanks. I appreciate that. I I appreciate that. Uh, you have, you have certainly lived up to your acronym. This has been a wonderful experience. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. I certainly appreciate it. And, uh, the next time, um, I'm going to interview you. I think, uh, you, you seem to have a story behind you and I want to get that one out too. The United Way is one of the world's most wide-reaching and impactful nonprofits. Their partnership with U.S. Bank touches a lot of their work, but the expansion of 211 has been particularly important since March. We asked Greg Cunningham and Reba Dominski from U.S. Bank about the 211 initiative. We had some technical difficulties with Reba's audio, but it's part of a powerful conversation about how poverty manifests itself in so many different ways. So we wanted to share that part of the story and what 211 means to them. So I felt uh, intensely aware of my privilege when Stan taught me about um, the United Way's 211 initiative because I'd never heard of it, because I n- never needed to hear of it. And no one in, in my close circle has needed to hear of it. Um, can you tell me about what 211 uh, speaks, the part of 211 that speaks to you specifically? You know, 211 is about people in crisis and providing them with what they need. And the amazing thing, if you listen to a 211 call, which I have, is it's rarely one thing. It's rarely, I don't have a place to stay with my kids tonight. When a skilled 211 operator probes a little bit more closely, it's, oh, and we don't have 
food tonight. Oh, and it is a, you know, poverty is complex. People have complex lives and complex needs. And so the skill with which the United Way staff that staffs the 211 crisis line provides resources without judgment, it's, it's absolutely breathtaking. And I've seen how the United Way doesn't just stop at the phone call. They will follow up the next day and the next to say, okay, we got you into a safe space. We, we got your family fed. Now what do you need? Now what? It, it is an endless supply of really thoughtful, empathetic listening and resources. I've, I've never experienced anything like it. And when we heard that in, uh, in light of COVID-19, the need for 211 and the calls had increased, I think it was like thousands of percent, we just stopped and said, we've got to be able to help our longstanding trusted partners at the United Way expand this service. And if you think about it now, in the light of everything that's happening, it's more necessary than ever. Greg, have you ever heard a 211 call? I have only because I'm I'm uh, in the in the work now. But um, you know, prior to doing this work, um, I hadn't. And um, you know, as Rava said, when you're talking about families in crisis, um, those kinds of resources and creating awareness for those resources, I think, is what's most important. We talk a lot about this notion of access and having uh, access to information. And I think a, a large part of the work that we're doing, and, and I'm, I'm really proud of the work that uh, Reba and I and our teams are, the, the work that we're doing together and our entire team is doing is, uh, is ensuring that we're creating access to information and things like 211, uh, access to, to capital for small businesses, access to technical assistance. Um, all of those, those um, things are uh, vitally important now, but you gotta, you gotta create awareness for them before they're truly useful. Because access is privilege. You got it. Absolutely. It, it, is, it is the, yes, it's the golden ticket to privilege. Yeah. <laughs> Backing up a little, how did you all begin partnering with the United Way? Well, we've been partnering with the United Way since dinosaurs roamed the earth. <laughs> I mean, it really has been yeah. decades. It started with our employee giving campaign. You right, remember, Faith, that you know, that's how the United Way got their start with so many big corporations as they ran our employee giving campaign where we invite our employees in to make donations to the organizations and the causes that matter to them. So that's where it started. And since then, it's just become so much more because we know what the United Way is. They're a trusted partner on the ground. They catalyze impact. They take a stance on policy, which is critical to systems change. They're a multiplier of impact. They convene. Um, I actually, when it comes to the United Way, um, I tend to send all of my grant makers, so my foundation staff, to sit in on a session held by the United Way grant committees. Because in my opinion, they do some of the most impactful um, data-based and substantive grant making that is done in this country. The approach that they take to understanding organizations and to funding organizations that truly have impact, I think is, um, is, uh, is really outstanding. So I tend to send my team through a school at the United Way that helps a new grant maker understand how do you truly do impact 
driven grant making. We've said it before, but doing real good isn't just about donations, it's about actions. So we reached out to the people on the ground taking U.S. bank funds and turning them into positive change in their communities. We want you to meet Alexis, a 211 call taker. Hi, my name's Alexis. I'm a 211 call specialist for United Way of Summit County in Akron, Ohio. That means that I spend my days answering calls and texts from people in need of help across our eight county region. Many people are struggling right now, so I provide a listening ear to let them know that we care about them and then search our research database to provide them with referrals to organizations that may be able to help them meet their needs. When the pandemic hit my community in Northeast Ohio, calls to 211 nearly doubled during the first week. Calls for help with food were three times higher than normal. We had many calls from people seeking help for the first time. The job at 211 is to connect people who need help to locally available resources. When there is a greater demand, local resources can get overwhelmed. For example, utility assistance is very limited right now in our local area. So partner support is invaluable. It means we can connect more people with the things that they need most. Our United Way has received donations which have enabled us to help families facing eviction to be able to pay their rent. One of the first families we helped was a nurse who had contracted COVID-19 at work. We have also been able to coordinate deliveries of food to low-income seniors and individuals at high risk for COVID-19. It meant so much to these senior citizens who didn't have family members who could help them. Recently, I had a client call in needing help with their water bill. COVID-19 had caused them to be laid off from their job, their only source of income. Not only was I able to advocate for this client by contacting the water company to turn their water back on for them, but because of the extra funds that we have received, this client was able to have their water bill paid for. The ease of mind that this provided for the client was unsurmountable. These funds were able to provide this client with running water and in turn, less emotional strain. We wanna thank you so much for all of your support. Stay safe. Thanks so much for listening to Real Good by U.S. Bank. If you like what you heard, listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.